I will be reading Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. All right, let me pray for us this morning. God, just speak through your word. Challenge our hearts. God, help us to be faithful to what you direct us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me jump in with the kids this morning, okay? Kids, I want you to, to think with me. Think with me. Listen to me for just a moment. Think with me. Does your family ever get ready to go somewhere together? I mean, the answer, I hope, is yes. Maybe you never leave your house. But I think you guys all leave your house, the kids that I know. Okay, so what would you think uh, if you were going to a concert or to school or to church or wherever you would go? What would you think if your mom or dad got into the car but they didn't have any pants on? Are they ready to go with no pants? No, they're not ready to go. So, would you go to the concert with them? No. Okay. Yeah. They, they, now, think about it, though. They have most of the things they need, right? They have most of what they needed. I didn't say they were lacking anything else, just pants. Maybe they even have a belt on. They have their belt on, just no pants. Okay? It's, is that any better? No. What if, what if we change it? What if, what if they had pants on, but they're missing their shirt? They have pants and socks and shoes and their coat and everything, but they forgot their shirt. Are they ready to go? No. No. Uh, it's amusing, by the way, to watch where the children look when they laugh about this. <laughs> Which parent they look to, because they seem to all be choosing one. All right, let me try, let me try one more time. And, and pretend you're getting ready to go to a store, to a friend's house, and you get in the car and you discover your mom or dad, whichever one's the sillier one that you keep looking at, and they, they have their pants on, they have their shirt on, they have their coat and their hat, and it, it, maybe it's snowy out, I don't know, uh, but they don't have one shoe and sock on. One of their feet is bare. Their toes are wiggling free. Okay, I want you to imagine that. Is that okay? Are they ready to go? No. No. Why are they not ready to go? They've got everything, it seems like. Almost everything, not quite, but almost everything. Why is that not enough? Yeah, you need everything to be ready, right? You need all of it. Like, 
you, you want to have all of it on. Today we're going to be talking about all the things that God has given to the people of God to help us to be ready to do what God calls us to do or tells us to do. We need it all, and we need all of it to be ready for what, uh, to, be, to be prepared. So pay attention as we talk through our passage this morning, beginning in verse 10, and, and just notice all the pieces that God has provided so that we can be ready and know that we need all of it. It's not most of it. It's not some of it. It's all of it. And it comes, by the way, here's the secret. It comes together. All right, here's the context. This morning we are finishing our journey through the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at the final teaching of Paul's letter to Ephesus. Paul tells us um, that everything is told us in this letter, that everything is being put under the authority of Jesus. God is uniting all things in Christ, which begins with us in the church and uh, the church with God. We are united with him as we are united in Christ. We are in the practical part of the letter, the second half of that letter, where Paul is exploring how our lives should be different because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And as Christians, this should affect us in absolutely every way. Today, we are going to begin with the word, finally, if you hadn't noticed it. The whole letter is kind of built to this truth, Um, the truth of the, the world understood spiritually. And so... um, we are, we are in that place. If you remember back to the words at the beginning of chapter 4, where we transition from the sort of theological section, one through chapter 1 through 3 of Ephesians, to the practical section, we talked about walking the worthy walk of obedience to Christ. That's what we mean. So walking the worthy walk, and this morning we're going to see that we are to do this in boldness. As we discuss this passage, we're going to see the task what God calls us to, we're going to follow that with what hinders us, what keeps us from the task, and we're going to talk about God's provision to help us in our task so that we can live boldly for Jesus. So, what are we supposed to do? Well, to begin with the task, uh, if you watch a military or a spy movie or something like that, you have to know the mission that you're on if, and to even know if you're doing it right or progressing or not. You have to know where you're going. You need to know um, where you're going up front. You can't just like try and then all of a sudden they tell you the mission later on. That's what Paul is doing in verse 10. He's telling the troops the mission if you want to do it that way. As a a means of application for the whole passage, you could just look at verse 10. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If we do that, spiritually speaking, we're done. Be strong. But how do we do that? Paul gives us the mission not only in verse 10, but then he adds to that a little bit um, that we need to stand. He says that four times, verse 11, two times in verse 13, and again in verse 14, he tells us to stand. So the idea is that if we are changed by Jesus, the mission is to be strong and stand spiritually. What kind of mission is that? I mean, at best it's defensive, right? If something comes at you, but standing, that doesn't seem like a very mission-focused thing. Where's the offensive action? The answer is found way back in chapter 1, uh, verse 19 through 21, where Paul states that God has shown this, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. We misunderstand ourselves if we forget that Jesus 
has won. The verbs here are all in the past tense. We live in what some call the in-between age or the time of already and not yet. That means that the prophecy, the prophecy is both fulfilled and not yet fulfilled. Jesus, the Messiah, has already come. That's why we celebrate Christmas. He has already come, but he will come again as the conquering king, the conquering hero, the conquering Christ who will defeat all sin and all rebellion and those who live in it. There's a war going on, and this war is different than any other because we know the end already from the beginning. Apostle John has a vision in Revelation 19 of Jesus on a white horse. His eyes are flames. He wears a crown. He's clothed in robes, dipped in blood, with the armies of heaven dressed in pure white linen arranged behind him. But notice that detail. The armies of God are wearing linen. That's not very protective. The army doesn't seem to need it. Because there's one offensive actor in the army of God, and that is God himself. Now, we can discuss some other pictures and some other things there uh, in other places. But here, God's army is lined up in linen, and Jesus leads them. A little bit later in chapter 20, we read the final battle in which the devil is able to gather all who are against God and his people into one army. And they surround God's people, the camp of God's people. And verse 9 of that chapter 20 says, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And all who were against God were thrown into the lake of fire. And that's the end. They win. We win. Jesus won. Ephesians tells us that it was through the cross. And through the resurrection, but also then through the ascension that Jesus is declared as the most powerful. The book of Revelation, um, in the book of Revelation, we read that Jesus' concrete military victory will come. Jesus' victory is both already, Ephesians, and not yet. In the end, we are to rest confidently in Jesus' victory and stand strong as he calls us to, but we need to know who we're fighting against. And this passage talks about that. What would keep us from standing boldly and fulfilling our mission? Paul tells us in verse 11 and 12, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul directly mentions the devil here in verse 11 as the enemy. Our culture, by the way, the one we live in right here, is not comfortable talking about spiritual forces. We like miracles when God heals someone or uh, to advance us somehow, but we don't like the idea that there are forces that do, not, that do unexplainable things which are against us. Can't take the Bible seriously, though, and disregard this spiritual forces idea god's activity in the world by the way is a spiritual force if we live only thinking about the concrete world what we can see and touch then we're wasting our time this morning right now if spiritual power doesn't exist then jesus couldn't have accomplished anything on the cross we should just go home but just as jesus's power is real there are also forces that are against him 
Just as we were or are in rebellion to God in areas of our life, there are spiritual forces that are in rebellion to God too. In Ephesians 1, uh, the Ephesians 1 passage that we read just a second ago, we find out that Jesus is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. These categories are found in our passage this morning too. They're parallel almost, almost. Jesus is more powerful than all powers that are on God's side. Sure, that makes sense. He's declared also the authority also over all the powers, even spiritual forces of evil that are mentioned here. But we learn a few things about this enemy. We learn that uh, these forces are attacking us if we're God's people. It would be easy to skip over this point, but we need to notice that, that against these forces, God's people need some kind of protection. They're attacking We need defenses for ourselves and our community together as God's people. These forces also are categorized and organized. There's a list of different types of powers, and there's the mention of schemes in verse 11. They're not from some random force working against us, but of a personal being, the devil specifically. We also learn that these forces are evil. What is evil? What defines evil? Evil is rebellion against God. Evil is disregarding and rebelling against God's rule, his creation, against his order, and all that he desires. Evil rejects God and his way. But Ephesians 2 2 says that we too once followed the prince of the power of the air. And by the way, that is reference to the devil. As Christians, this means that while we are now followers of Jesus, we we were once followers of the schemes of the devil, and we were on the side of evil. These forces, also the last kind of truth we find about them, they're not flesh and blood. Think about that. We're not fighting a physical enemy. This portion of the letter talks more about spiritual, supernatural evil than any other part in Paul's writings. This might be because of the focus on the spiritual concern of the Ephesians, which we talked about way back in September when we began this. We read about when Paul comes to Ephesus for the first time in Acts 19. He shares Jesus, and many people are saved, and that's amazing. Luke tells us in Acts 19, 18 through 20, that many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices And a a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. These believers and the cost of their magic books show that there, there are many people in Ephesus who are worried about this stuff. Just in the portion of people that God, um, changes and that it makes are are made into the church of God just in that portion there's this kind of money but the truth is that's a small portion of the entire city these people in Ephesus are worried about spiritual power or they're seeking spiritual power so how does the enemy spiritual forces if they're coming against us how do they fight Paul tells us in verse 12 with a very unusual word for fighting uh, in war here Some translations um, translate the word as fight, which is technically correct since there's war imagery, but the word here is specifically wrestle or wrestling. The word is used for sport wrestling, uh, which never, by the way, uses armor at all, which I just find interesting in the sense of this passage. 
But Paul had other words to use. So why did he choose wrestling? He's highlighting the intimacy of this fighting. This is close combat. This is intimately close combat. The devil will get in close and personal with us. These forces will be close with us. We'll find that that people we are close to work against us in line with these things. We'll find that even the culture we've grown up in works against us and against our commitment to God. We'll, We'll discover a crazy reality if we keep looking. Your own flesh, you, your desires will be at odds with God's faithfulness. As you conquer one area of your life with faithfulness, you'll discover there are other areas to be conquered for Jesus. And that's just inside of you. This is a close war. This is all around us. It's an intimate fight. Remaining faithful to Jesus is going to be hard. It's going to cost us. And that's the point. But Jesus doesn't leave us defenseless. We know um, the talk... uh, We know the task and the enemy. So how can we hope to stand against spiritual powers? And the answer is, according to this passage, the full armor of God. So the temptation for me right now, from the beginning, when I knew this passage was coming, the temptation is to create some cutesy picture of a soldier or maybe bring one of the kids up and dress them up as we talk about it uh, and tell you that you should put on each piece in your life and dress like a spiritual soldier. We unfortunately don't have time to go deeply into each of these pieces this morning. Let me encourage you, though, to go back and study them, study their logistical, what the purpose of each of them is, study their historical context, and even the vocabulary is very specific and intentional, and study the spiritual significance. Dwell on that. Think on that. I think there's real value in that. This morning, we're going to actually have to move pretty quickly, focus mostly on the meanings to get to the big picture. So, there are six items mentioned. One, the first item is the belt of truth. And this is not just any old truth. This is the truth that is mentioned throughout this letter. Like in Ephesians 4, 21, he mentions uh, that the truth is in Jesus. So the truth, or, truth is either about Jesus, as in the gospel message, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, or the truth is, namely, Jesus himself. Either way... It's about Jesus. Second item is the breastplate of righteousness. Where does righteousness come from? Well, it comes from the Lord. In fact, because of Jesus, the righteousness here is God's righteousness given to us, and which is displayed in how much we show out the image of God in our own lives. We show his righteousness. The next item, the shoes of readiness in the gospel of peace. This one, by the way, is the hardest one to title. Nobody can get it straight because it's not the shoes. It's the readiness from the gospel of peace. The the, the shoes of the readiness, not the gospel of peace, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Commentators are split on what exactly this means. And the difference is this. Either the good news of salvation brings you to stand because it prepares you, or the good news prepares you to go and do something. Focusing on either the... um, the, the message or maybe the, the, the result of the message. And we're going to come back to that actually in a moment. The fourth item, though, is the shield of faith. So what does faith mean in Ephesians? Paul mentions this in faith in five out of the six chapters in Ephesians. He mentions the Ephesians' faith in the Lord, which gives him joy. He, brings, uh, he mentions how their faith brings them access to God. And is, their faith is how God, or Christ specifically, lives in 
his people. And it, faith is the thing that unifies his people. Finally and famously, Paul mentions in chapter 2, verse 8, that we are saved by grace through faith. In summary, faith for us and faithfulness in us is created where? We talked about this many weeks ago, but that through the faithfulness of Jesus, by what Jesus extends to us, uh, by which, sorry, Jesus extends to us the grace of salvation. So faith. And then the fifth item, the helmet of salvation. According to one commentator, Peter O'Brien, uh, this comparison is very direct. It's the helmet which is salvation itself. Just salvation. Salvation protects you. This is the salvation that is granted to us as a grace through faith. The faithfulness of Jesus and our faith in him. Both of which are the gift of God. Thus, it is secure. It's not dependent on us to gain or to keep. You're secure. The final item is the sword of the Spirit. Interestingly, this sword is not ours. It belongs to the Spirit, it says. Unlike the helmet which is salvation, the helmet which is salvation, um, this cannot be the sword which is the Spirit because Paul further defines it uh, with the Word of God. That's what it is. So this sword belongs to the Spirit which is the Word of God. So go with me a little bit. Most commentaries that I consulted pointed out that Paul used a different word for word here. Now it's going to get confusing because I'm talking about the word word. So Paul uses the typical word word or logos uh, for written words, written words, the, the written scripture or something like that. In this particular word, though, he uses the word rema or something. I don't know how you pronounce it in Greek and nobody knows because it's a dead language, but at least the first century Greek. So um, he emphasizes this spoken word. And Peter O'Brien uh, suggests that if we follow Paul's usual pattern, that then Paul must be referring to the gospel, but is stressing the actual speaking forth of the message, which is given its penetration and power by what? The Spirit of God. So notice this. If all of this is true, and if I'm not way off track, the sword is the spoken gospel which is used by the Spirit, perhaps to convince people of sin, for salvation, maybe later to convince people of sin for sanctification, maybe to bring them to a greater understanding of the love of God. The labeling of the sword as the spirit sword actually sets up a huge part about this whole armor metaphor. Isaiah 59, 14-20 that Nate read for us earlier in the service depicts God putting on the breastplate of His righteousness. I didn't even notice it until this morning, but the verse right before is all about His salvation, His righteousness. Oh, and then, then we get the imagery. So He already has it. Um, so the breastplate of His righteousness and the helmet of His salvation. There are many other passages like this in Isaiah and the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament that depict God putting on armor. That's Paul's point. This armor is God's armor given to defend us. The Old Testament also depicts God as the armor of his people, the shelter of his people, such as their shield or their fortress, our everlasting rock, our salvation is God himself. This is an important detail. The armor not just the, uh, just the armor, but the full armor of God's people is God himself. Who he is. What he has done. So what protects God's people from spiritual attack, these, these are the pieces. So, so the thing that protects us 
are the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, the righteousness of Jesus given to believers, the preparation that we receive in knowing the good news of peace that God has created in his people between themselves and between himself and his people. Jesus' faithfulness also that we trust in and the experience of being saved by him. Those are what save us. Those are him in us. This protects us, but we've uh, we still we also have the spoken message of the gospel that points us to Jesus, which the Spirit uses to defend, convict. These all together are God's means of protecting us, His church to promote unity, and which fortifies us to stand. There's one more movement in this passage. God actually doesn't give you power; he gives you Himself. Think of think with me about this. Practically speaking, I don't know where you've lived, what you've been around. How do you fight spiritual power? Just generally in the world. How would you fight spiritual power? (laughs) Can you fight a spiritual power physically? Can you do that? The answer is no. No, you can't. You must fight spiritually. So how do you fight spiritually? Every spiritist that be shamans, witch doctors, whatever, every will tell you that you have to appeal to a greater power. You fight spiritual power with greater power. That's what the Ephesians lived in. It's true in every place in the world. When a spirit or a spiritual force attacks you, you must seek a higher power. Many other cultures, this reality is out in front and people see and seek spiritual, um, personal spiritual beings or impersonal spiritual power through Things like amulets or um, practices or whatever. But before we think that we Westerners have grown beyond this and matured beyond this superstition, let me assure you that it exists for us too. Just differently. Maybe just more hidden. Think about how many times you've ever wished someone good luck. I do it too. I do it too. Our culture conditions us to wish someone good luck. Concept of luck is a spiritual force. Accumulating and or possessing luck is a, a spiritual type of concept, like the idea of karma or chi. Or, or do this. Search on Netflix, because I actually did this, and typed in the word ghost. Let it go and just see how many documentaries and movies or shows there are. There's even a show, Ghost Puppies. So that your children can enjoy watching, you know, the, the buddies movies and all the little puppy movies that have come out. Like, there's a ghost puppies movie. So your kids can also be fascinated with this topic. Spiritual things. I guess they're ghosts. I don't know if the puppies haunt them. I didn't watch it. Just kind of blew my mind and I just closed it. Or go to a store, a store in Quincy like Five Below. This is my example. I've maybe used it before. You're going to find books on astrology, reading your dreams, tarot cards, uh, tarot readings, healing crystals, healing oils, spiritual herbal remedies, energy healing, and guides to the types of angels that are out there and their spiritual powers, all on the same table. And I say those very specifically because I have a picture of it because it shocked me at the moment. Took a picture and I then pulled the topics out for us. It says that we may reject publicly spiritual power, but the truth is we seeking it as a nation as people as a culture remember we said in the first weeks of our study to the ephesians the ephesians were concerned about spiritual power paul is assuring them that jesus this jesus that they are connected to is the ultimate spiritual power himself jesus 
highlights how miraculous the, the miraculous unity of each person with God's people in the church and the unity of the church with, God, with Jesus is really so powerful. We can withstand any attack as we trust in Jesus because we, according to Ephesians, are his body and he defends himself. As we turn towards our application thoughts, by the way, a little bit longer today, um, our application thoughts, uh, looking back at the beginning of our passage, there's the phrase, be strong, if you look back in verse 10. It's actually not uh, active, like that is in English, it's a passive thing. It's written in a passive voice. It could be translated something like, be made strong in the Lord. We're empowered by God through his strength, through his might. Not our own. And the question for us in the whole metaphor of the armor is, how do we put on the armor of God or receive God's strength? How do we get all of this? We get the armor and God's, uh, God's armor and strength as we pray for it. Notice how Paul ends the passage. Verse 14 through 20 is actually one long sentence in Greek. that's half about the armor and half about prayer. Specifically, prayers for boldness. Prayer and the armor go together. In fact, prayer is the means by which we receive the armor. If Jesus is our strength, we need to connect with that strength, and we do that through prayer. We should be praying at all times, it says. Here, um, we even read that the Spirit is involved in our praying. Next, we're to pray with all prayer and supplication. My simple way to define this is that prayer is any communication with God, praise and other things, but supplication is specifically asking God for something. In this case, maybe for the protection that God can bring, the armor of God, the strength of God to be bold. We're to keep alert with all perseverance, it says in our prayers. We're to pay attention. We're to find our weaknesses and pray for strength and protection in those areas. We're to pray that we would be made strong enough to fight against whatever that temptation is or that struggle. If you're struggling with something, pray for strength to work to protect yourself in those areas. Maybe you should invite another believer to come in and join with you and pray about that struggle with you. We certainly pray for ourselves individually, but Paul's real point here is that we get God's armor and strength as we pray for each other. Verse 18, we see that our prayers to God uh, is to be for all the saints, it says. We're to pray for one another. We're to pray that God will protect and empower each other. Interestingly, for the metaphor, soldiers didn't get ready for battle alone. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I've been thinking about it this week. Soldiers don't get, I'm not even sure soldiers get ready today alone. The armor is heavy or difficult to strap on, especially at that time, but even today, you might not even be able to reach the buckles on some of it or whatever. Uh, You might get one twisted in the middle of a battle, something in the wrong place is not going to help you. So you want to make it right. You need other people to check. Squads of soldiers suited up together. This was life and death. You don't want to miss anything by being too proud to ask someone else to help you. Like this, we must pray that God would defend other believers. Defense is personal, yes, and corporate. Sin and weakness in God's community affects us individually. Paul mentions the devil's schemes earlier. One of the devil's most common plans is to create disunity in in God's people. If God's people turn on one another, then our attention is not on the enemy. We expose ourselves. 
Think of the key verbs in our passage. Be strong. Stand. These are alert words. Can't relax. Fall asleep in spiritual warfare. For a final turn here, why are we standing strong? What do we do besides stand? Why? Come to some hints throughout this passage. The first hint came when we considered the shoes that we talked about. This is the readiness given in the good news, the gospel of peace. We're prepared when we consider the peace God creates between us and each other and the peace which God declares between us and himself because of Jesus. Our second hint is found in the element of the, uh, the final element that we talked about, the sword. Sword is what? The declared word of God. The gospel message. This was only potentially, this was the only potentially offensive weapon in this list And it's not even ours. It's the Spirit's weapon. To do what? Verse 19, Paul leans into the purpose of all of this standing strong as he asks for prayer for himself. In the request, we find a truth. The purpose of God's strength is to stand strong, to boldly declare to others the gospel of salvation in the Lord. We mentioned earlier that that we are not at a war with other humans. We're in a spiritual battle. And that said, the only hope that for those on the side of the devil, even if they think that they're on their own side, it's really his side, the only hope they have is for God's miraculous power to change their life. Just like he has done for you and for me if we are followers of him. Notice this, Paul, uh, as, the, as one of the, all the saints that he asked the Ephesians to pray for, asked the Ephesians to pray that words will be given to him. He asked them to pray that God will embolden him to open his mouth to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. In this sense, we too are like all these saints. We too are like Paul. We're called to be an amazing demonstration of God's grace and love as we stand together in strength. Yes, defended by Jesus himself against spiritual attacks. Yes, and along with being a demonstration, we are also to boldly We are to vocally declare the message of God's love and peace comes through Jesus to the world. So to summarize this whole thing up, you are in a battle. The question is, have you committed to follow Jesus? Have you told him you are committed to him? Have you told others that you are living for him? Make sure that's your first move. Speak to me afterwards or somebody else. Speak to somebody else if you have questions or if you've never done this. Love to talk to you about that. Following that, Jesus brings you into a war. If you follow Jesus, you are in a war. You're already part of it, but you have changed sides now. Just as God turned you from a rebel into his son or daughter, you are rejected now by the other side. And the enemy is seeking ways to disrupt you and your life keep you from fulfilling your mission. To stand strong, to be bold, to declare his truth. But you need to be alert to sin and disunity in God's people, second thing. You are in a battle and you are not alone. You are called to follow Jesus through joining his church, his body, his people. We are his church Uh, We, as his church, are to trust in God's defense corporately and individually in his power as we stand strong. Third thing, call on God through prayer to defend you. 
singularly and plurally, like as a group and individually. God gives us his armor and himself. Just because you are against the whole group of organized foes does not mean you are powerless. You are empowered by the one who is capable of defeating anything. That's the declaration of Ephesians. Finally, in the words of this passage, stand strong against the enemies of God and declare boldly the gospel message of the all-powerful Jesus who loves this world, calls it to himself, calls it to turn from its rebellion and turn to his love. Let me close this time together with this prayer. Jesus, make us strong in the Lord and the strength of your might. Embolden us to talk about you often and faithfully. Help us to tell others what you have done. Finally, Jesus, change lives through your message that your kingdom would grow and that we can see it. We can praise you. Praise your name for the miraculous changing of rebels into family. God, may you be praised. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.